0: Hey folks, welcome back to the latest edition of the most awesome founder podcast today. I am once again with my colleague and good friend, professor Dries Foms. Um, we have these great opportunities to switch roles as, as hosts. And, uh, I just found out today that I'm the host. So I guess I'm (laughs) leading this, this intro, but, um, I really love doing these sessions today. We're doing another one of uh, Dries and I's inspiration sessions where we talk about things that uh, made us learn, made us think, and made us laugh. Tapping into current events, current research, and interesting stories about technology, entrepreneurship, and all of the interesting topics that we love to cover on this podcast. Dries, I have to start by saying, I had a hard time picking topics today okay. because I feel like the past few weeks there's just so much crazy shit going on <laughs> in the world. <laughs> you know, I was uh I was reading like Elon Musk's tweet yesterday. I don't know if you saw that nope. about the the about the migrants, so. Oh yes, the one
1: in Germany, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, he
0: he was tweeting to the German public about these NGOs and the migrant ships and the German foreign office was like, yeah, it's called saving lives, buddy. I was like, oh, that's a good one. And and then I just kind of got going down a rabbit hole and I'm like, man, there's so many things to talk about right now. And it just reminded me that I think this is such a fun conversation for me because uh, one, I enjoy our engagement and the different perspectives. We look at the same topics, but I also think we're just in a crazy fucking time. <laughs> There's just so much stuff happening, Of you know, whether it's the way funding is changing with startups or the nutty technologies or the, the political economic issues surrounding them. Um, I think we could do these every day and mm-hmm. have something different and ridiculous to talk about. But that being said, shall we just kick it off? Yes. Rather than uh, wandering, why don't we start in usual fashion, Dries, and you start by talking about something that uh, made you learn?
1: Yes, but actually your introduction is interesting because I think the two items that I brought with me today are actually topics that I think are not getting a lot of attention uh, Mm -hmm. nowadays, but I think they're quite important, and that's actually why I wanted to kind of highlight them, because... For me, these are two topics that don't receive a lot of attention. And the first one that I want to discuss is about uh, the, the issue of entrepreneurs seeking public funding. Mm-hmm. So as an entrepreneur, you can, of course, go, like you were saying, you can go for investors and that, that landscape is also fundamentally changing. There is a lot of discussion about what is the future of VC. But an alternative is that you actually uh, check out whether you can get funding from public institutions like local governments, national governments, maybe even the European Union. All these institutions actually nowadays have quite a broad portfolio of kind of subsidy instruments where you as a startup Mm. can get support for your activities. Now before I go into the paper that I want to discuss, maybe a question for you because you have. Created quite some startups in the past and in the present. Have you actually ever tried to get funding from a from a government agency? <laughs> <laughs> Have you gone kind of that rabbit hole?
0: Dries, you're talking to an American man. We don't get that kind of crap where I come from. This is we are a, a totally, I feel like, private sector driven world. I, I mean, all jokes aside, there there are some funding opportunities out there, of course. But I would say. The ubiquity and the access to it, um, I wasn't really exposed to until I came to Germany. Yeah. Um, when I lived in Canada, it it really hadn't, um, I think the government really hadn't caught up with the startup world yet. So when I was there, I left in uh, 2009. Um, it hadn't really kicked off yet. Now, now it's it's definitely there. And most Canadian ventures I know are tapping into to funds like mm. that. Um, it, in the U.S., interestingly enough, it tends to be bigger dollar amounts, bigger types of projects, yeah. you know, big research funding. Um, there's the Small Business Administration yeah. that does big kind of technical grants and whatnot, but seeing the uh, the funding accessi- accessible in smaller amounts, supporting founders, support, rather than supporting innovation topics, but actually supporting the entrepreneurs themselves, that's something yeah. very, very new to me That that seems for me at least as an american a, a pretty uniquely european experience so the short the that's a long answer to saying no <laughs> never gotten a buck from from uh, the government just bills for taxes
1: yeah but of course you're already quite some years now in in germany and europe but so you have never had kind of the intention to start looking into that kind of ways to because there are quite some interesting funding schemes also in germany yeah you have the exist scheme you have all these schemes where yeah. actually founders then kind of get a salary yeah. of the government for the first year or the first two year when they have their startup so that's kind of the opportunity costs are a bit lower um yeah i i mean
0: I guess my, my I have a two part answer to that question. That the first part is uh, you know just last week I finally got my German citizenship. Oh, that so
1: we should celebrate so, this with a kind of I don't know. Yeah, Ger-
0: Germany just got a little <laughs> bit shadier. <laughs> but uh, but that process took two years of mm-hmm. bureaucracy and yeah. a lot of paperwork, and that was pretty frustrating to say the least. Uh, the other part is you know I worked in the. Uh, the kind of nonprofit world i worked for the un and and bilateral un, unilateral aid agencies for almost a decade before i got into tech and and i certainly was exposed to plenty of grant writing yeah. and yeah. Um, and that process was is notoriously long mm. painful tedious and didn't always come with the return that you hope for no yeah. so i mean i spent times where i spent a month or two writing a grant myself or paying a grant writer a lot of money. And, and it didn't actually pan out. And I think for me, when I've thought about this process since I've been here and I kind of looked at the, the odds and I say, how many investors could I talk to mm. in the period of time that I'm trying to write this grant? Yeah. And, um, and of course, you know, networks matter, relationships matter. So it was never really appealing to me. Yeah. I do want to caveat that and say if i was uh if i was a deep tech founder in the r d process and i knew i had a long runway before i could actually commercialize and get to market i think you almost don't have a choice to go after that type of funding but if you're quickly commercializable type venture i'm not sure the value proposition is as compelling as oh free money out there because every all money has a price right
1: Okay, and I think that's that's a very good introduction to the paper that, that I want to briefly discuss. So the paper is called Subsidy Entrepreneurs, an Inquiry into Firms Seeking Public Grants. It was published in the Journal of Industry Competition and Trade in 2020 by three authors named Anders Gustafsson, Patrick Gustafsson, and Daniel Halvarsson, which which I think makes clear from which country they are (laughs) coming. So we are talking here about uh, three scholars from Sweden that were able to collect very interesting data about uh, Swedish startups and the extent to which they apply for funding. And actually uh, the purpose of this research was to find out who is actually getting funding, which kind of startups are getting funding, and are it actually the more successful firms that are getting funding, or is it the more the the, the least successful firms that are getting funding? Mm. Um, so that's that's what they wanted to find out. Hmm. So are it the high flyers or the low flyers that are getting funding? Yeah. Uh, any intuition? <laughs> what do you think?
0: <laughs> I mean, it's just an intuition. But if I would think historically, I would say these aren't the high flyers,
1: mm.
0: right? Um, one just because there's my hypothesis would be they have a longer trajectory to get to market, which creates a greater opportunity for failure. Mm. And generally speaking, really experienced entrepreneurs with a track record of success and whatnot would find capital quite freely in other places. Yeah. I guess that would be my guess. But yeah. I'm, that being said, I'm not Swedish. So maybe in Sweden <laughs> there's a there's a different model going yeah. on.
1: No, I think in the end your intuition seems to quite align well with the findings. So what do these scholars do? They, of course, you have to always have to, as a scholar, you have to measure success in one way or another, and that's that's always difficult. But so here they look at labor productivity as a success factor. And so labor productivity is, is even kind of an accounting number that you can kind of calculate uh, based on the annual results of companies where you actually calculate how much added value is one employee creating for your company? So that's that's the success factor they were able to kind of identify for all these companies. And so what they in the end did was looking at uh, do companies with a high labor productivity, do they apply more or less for grants? And who is actually getting grants? And so what they found was that kind of the top companies, so the most successful ones, they don't... <laughs> apply at all, yeah. So they don't, they just don't care about this kind of funding. Then, kind of the, the the moderately successful firms, they allocate some of their time, so they typically apply for some funding. And then the least productive firms, they heavily apply for funding. So there, they see that these kind of firms, on a very regular basis, apply for funding, and because they do it in a very regular way, they're also more likely to get it. Of course, if you don't apply for it, you can never get it. But so actually they see that the companies that apply the most, which tend to be the least productive companies, always also are more likely to get funding in the end. And so in the end, what they conclude is that this kind of subsidies, this kind of public funding is mainly distributed to the least productive startups in the population.
0: Hmm. What do you think of that? measure of productivity because yeah. that's the thing that's sticking in my head on this one
1: yeah that and that's of course always a question uh, like how do you measure success mm-hmm. um and you could as an alternative go more like are you vc backed or something like that but then the problem always becomes that you're suddenly talking about a very small part of your economy because actually not that many startups or smes are VC um, ready or or even interesting for VC. So that's always a bit of tension that you also see in research. Do we focus on this very narrow specific group of VC backed startups that already get a lot of attention? Or do we go for a broader sample? But if you go for a broader sample, typically your choices in terms of how do we measure success become a bit more restrictive. So I think here they they clearly wanted to go for the broader sample but that also means that yeah your success indicators become a bit more questionable i would
0: say so this value added per employee metric that's based on the act is it based on the actual revenue of the company sorry i might have missed okay got
1: it so It's simply people report their costs, their revenues. And based on that, you can calculate in really a kind of accounting way, this value added per employee, which is a kind of standard metric that in financial accounting can be applied. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I can't help but think that, you know, this is still going to be such a narrow selection of of startups, Mm. right? Like me being here in Berlin, and seeing as many startups as I do on a regular basis, how few would kind of fit into these categories, you know? I mean, because maybe you take the Grunder-Stipendium-type financing out of this equation, right? Nah. This is probably more R&D-type, maybe larger-scale funding yeah. to, to solve bigger, bigger issues. And I think, wow, there'd be so few mm. in this ecosystem, yet if I think of my my teams that I work with in Silicon Valley through Alchemist Accelerator, there would be a, a probably a huge number of them. and uh, But it, they're just profoundly different ventures. And um, even though I think we're moving in an era of deep tech, there's still so much just kind of more traditional commercial venturing no. taking place out there. So this is, to me, a bit of a subsection yeah. of, you know, the sample size is, is maybe a bit more specific than you described, do you th- do you think that's a fair assessment?
1: No, I don't know, but actually I think if I remember well they had like 2000 companies huh? so it's not extremely small but at the same time you can still say it's a kind of a selection from the economy. Um so in that way that that makes sense yeah.
0: But it's but it's there's an inherent the selection criteria because they're being selected based on if they're getting
1: these grants, right? So here they look at they simply look at who is applying. So they, they have oh, who is full, applying. So they have the full population and they are looking at who mm-hmm. is applying. And so they see that the least productive are applying more. And then they also test it from the ones who apply who do, does really get the funding. And then you see again that the least mm-hmm. productive kind of outperform simply because they apply more.
0: Mm. It's interesting because you know when I was leading the entrepreneurship center at Vehau mm. we were helping to facilitate uh, some exist grants, yeah. and I mean we had a lot of people inquiring about them. But as soon as they read the criteria for the grant, mm. right, and the kind of technological innovation, most people chose not to put in the effort to apply because no. they didn't didn't feel that they qualified. It was generally the more science based or like emerging technology based companies that. That applied for it so if you were building an e-commerce company um, you probably wouldn't put the energy into no. into making that application no. but interesting
1: no but so for me it all of course also triggers then the, the broader question should we do this you know so if we if we see that actually we are not really supporting the most productive firms but the least productive should be do it. And and I think you can think in two ways. You can think like, yeah, if we are mainly kind of supporting the bottom, maybe it's not a good thing. At the same time, you could also argue, yeah, but you can think in terms of kind of inequality. and, And it can actually kind of give people that have maybe a more difficult kind of starting position still the room to even if they're not productive in the short term, maybe be, but these grants help them to become more successful in the long term. So I don't have a very, maybe that's because I'm a scholar. <laughs> might, yeah. Maybe my opinion is here a bit gray, uh, but but you see, of course, that there's often a lot mm-hmm. of discussion about this kind of grants. And and I think this this actually definitely contributes to thinking about, okay, who are we actually supporting? And and is this something that we want? Yeah, so I think, mean, we need to be honest about it. So it seems that we are mainly supporting the weaker players in the ecosystem. And then I think it's a matter almost of ideology, whether you want it or not. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, to be fair, VCs are also supporting the weak players in the ecosystem, right? Because only 20% of those companies actually are successful, mm. right? So the super majority of of private investment into new ventures is is a sunk lost cost anyways yeah right so uh, in the end it's just by the you know the statistics that only the top percent of companies are going to succeed mm-hmm. and the super majority are are going to fail so you know i think when you think of these policies you have to think uh, this is to me the challenge is policymakers are often out of touch with reality so maybe they create expectations and targets mm. that aren't feasibly reachable i would be looking at any kind of grant funding the same way i would look at a venture funding that you know you got to think that 80% of the the money that goes into it is going to be written off and only the the top piece the top you know the upper echelon is going to achieve the success that's going to kind of cover the value of the total the total investment right and i think okay this but is i, just... I here i want to give you some pushback
1: yeah. because cool. i think vc for me is a very specific kind of universe where you want to invest in the crazy ones you know it's like i build a portfolio of 10 companies and i accept that eight will never uh, become successful but i want to have these two or this one shots where they really create my return on investment but it's it's almost like you you invest in companies that others don't want to invest mm. in because they think it's too crazy, but you see this kind of diamond in the rough and you believe that at least some of them can make it. And that, that's why we need venture capital to kind of invest in these crazy outliers. Mm. Whereas I think maybe the, 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 the public funding is more about, okay, we just want to kind of, and it's not only about these crazy outliers, we just also want to have reasonable companies that can help uh, the country in having sufficient employment so for me maybe the objective of this kind of funding is different from VC funding and they are perfectly capable to exist next to each other but then because they are a different kind of funding they should also apply different criteria I think I'm going
0: to push back on your pushback (laughs) a little bit (laughs) Um, because I think what you're talking about is you know v- venture capital strategy and mm-hmm. that only a- occurs in a subsection of venture capital because okay. i would say you know angel investors for example yeah. aren't betting only on unicorns no. private equity has a different irr model altogether that no. is not looking for that that either and and some could argue you know a, a deep tech funding source is actually they're the ones that are really gambling on the outliers mm. because they have such uncertainty with their R and D they're not even commercialization ready. They're the highest risk ones of yeah. all, yeah. you that's- know? So I, I mean, I think in reality, like most ventures are going to fail. Yeah. That's just, that's just the reality of it. This is just another alternative financial product, right? That's servicing a, a different client base. And the reality is, is I think we need diversity, in that Mm. right we don't want to put all the horsepower into vc no you know i think i think government and then there's secondary benefits which we will actually touch in one of the topics i'm talking about later which you know like government should have its finger on the pulse of innovation Mm. and this is a mechanism that allows them to at least be engaged in a certain degree because as we see in germany as we see in other countries in the world as well there's such a detachment between policymakers Mm. and what's actually happening on the ground that there's this massive delay between like dealing with regulation and enablement from what technology is doing so i think you know we don't want government dictating how the private sector and innovation happens but we certainly want them at the table mm-hmm. and if they're going to be at the table they shouldn't you know regulate their asses to the table they should buy their way in like everybody else and participate in a in an equitable way and to me this is a a way to do it now no. politics aside some people may believe in small government some people <laughs> may believe in lower taxes that is that's you know their prerogative but this does i think build a stronger connection between the largest funding sources on the planet, which are our governments, you know, and the innovation that's happening on the ground. So I wholeheartedly support it. We just have to expect that the returns are not going to be hugely ambitious. But then again, where are they Mm. in any kind of government funding initiative?
1: No, no. Makes sense, actually. Yeah. Cool. Good topic. No, it's something we rarely to... discuss, I think. And, and still, I think it's a very important part. Like, what is the role of government in this kind of, of industry? And, and how can we shape that role to maximize its added value?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's certainly really, really interesting to think of the role of government, right? Because I think we also think of this from a very uh, Western lens right and you know even even me like i think the americans are kind of on one far end and the europeans are maybe a bit more centrist on this topic but when you think on the other end of the spectrum too you look at like china for example who are playing a key role in this stuff that maybe the driving role in this stuff and there are certain you know subsectors of technology and innovation where that country is dominating because of the horsepower the government's Mm. putting into it and i think this opens up some really interesting you know political political topics but i'm going to save that (laughs) (laughs) so i want to talk about a, a a topic that it's actually been in the back of my mind for a long time and it just kind of resurfaced and led me to read a book over the past couple of weeks. But, um, you know, over the past month or two, I've been kind of, uh, reflecting on my entrepreneurial journey Mm
1: -hmm. because
0: it's been, uh, really next year, it'll be like 20 years of, of building companies. And, you know, the, there's one that I think about a lot, which is my first back company, Kula.com. This is an enterprise SaaS, but it was also a, a social venture. And, you know, we kind of came into that business with this very audacious goal of we want to contribute a, a billion dollars a year to philanthropy, but coming from corporates, which are uh, grossly underrepresented when it comes to philanthropy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like in the US, for example, philanthropic corporate philanthropic dollars account for less than 20% of the total. So most philanthropic giving is coming from, from individuals. Mm. And, um, of course we didn't meet, meet that audacious goal, but we did have a pretty nice impact. The billions was millions at least. Um, but, uh, last week I was talking with one of my portfolio founders, a company that I have a little bit of equity in, uh, in Silicon Valley. It's also a social enterprise called give shop and, we were talking about why there are so few uh, unicorn social ventures, mm. and um, you know, I think, of course, you could debate all day what you consider a social venture to be. Um, but it, I think, in the kind of traditional definition, where you know it's baked into the DNA of the company to put you know people, people, and planet above profit, mm. um, or to to the core mission of its business model is to contribute to social good. There are not so many that have, you know, reached the kind of scale that would make a VC drool. Um, we could actually only think of one. There's a U.S. company called Benevity, which is kind of a giving platform okay. uh, for um, for corporates for um, employee branding, employee engagement that kind of reached unicorn status. So I wanted to understand why. Why is it, you know, because there can be scalable business models in this space, but where's the, where's the missing link? And, you know, it was interesting because I, before I was building technology companies, I was working as a development economist and and I was working on kind of social good topics, but from a, a, a more kind of public sector side of things from, you know, development agencies. And, I ended up picking up this book by uh, a woman uh, named and my Chang and she is a interesting character because she was uh, uh, a lead engineer for Google when they were kind of developing the uh, step-by-step driving instructions for Google maps. And okay. she led that team and uh, was a, a very successful young career person in Silicon Valley who, um, who then kind of had a, a made this decision that she wanted to use her superpowers for good, and uh, moved into the uh, the public sector, and uh, ended up becoming the chief innovation officer for USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and started to kind of ponder this question: Why why are these development projects not working very effectively? But interestingly, before her time at Google, she worked in, her st- in a startup, and one of the engineers on her team was a young engineer named Eric Reese. Sure. and they became friends, and um, you know they communicated over the years. And as Eric Reese was developing, you know, under the under the guidance of Steve Blank, was developing the, the lean startup. Mm. Um, um, anyways, and Mai Chang kind of took some of these principles, and she wrote this book called Lean Impact. Okay. How to, how to innovate for radically greater social good. Hmm. And um, really the book kind of pondered this question. Why have so, why have so few social interventions uh, have achieved significant impact at scale? Like why, what is the missing link that kept this from happening? And rather than throw out the answer already, what do you think, Dries? Why do you think we can have um gimmicky apps or the ability to get groceries at home or you know scooters that litter our sidewalks easily become these you know multi-billion dollar ventures but things that are actually hugely impactful for the world seem to uh be unable to do that
1: now one of my explanations would be and this is a kind of bit of an academic explanation but i would say there is a selection effect So the question is, which founders in the end create social ventures, and and like you were explaining with the example of the lady who wrote a book, so she worked at Google, I suppose she worked like crazy, and then maybe also came to the conclusion, okay, this is not what I want for the rest of my life. So I will do a social venture, but also maybe then with a different ambition set. that that ambition set in the end is also reflected in the results of these social ventures, that you might be less kind of, how do I have to say, um, pushing towards just making it happen despite all the other circumstances that you're facing. And, and that that to some extent might explain that you're not simply not then creating this kind of outliers which unicorns tend to be.
0: So, you think it's your, you would say it's almost the motivations of the founders? Yeah. Then, gotcha. Interesting. I did not expect that answer. Okay. I mean, so f- for me, this is my, my kind of previous perspective on this was that it was the motivations of investors. Mm. Um, because my experience when I was raising capital for Kula was I was getting, turned away before I was getting even an opportunity to pitch mm-hmm. because they connected social good to less profits, yeah. right? And I, I think this whole people planet profits hierarchy that has become so ubiquitous, uh, a lot of investors said, Oh, profits are on the bottom and all these other things are are going to take priority. Yeah. So by nature, that's not going to be a good investment. And of course, um, as being a founder in that role myself, you're always looking for reasons external, because I can say from my burnout on that journey, there was no shortage of of motivation or or effort that went into it. But, but it's interesting what you say, right? Because I think that does trigger some interesting, um, I guess, things to think about of even if, even if I was right, and it was the investors not contributing, is your perspective something that, these investors have that, Oh, this is an unmotivated founder that just wants to, you know, it's kind of like what Frank Talon was talking about, about the Bali entrepreneurs. Like are, do they really want to change the world? The question to me is, do you have to be driven by the finance, like solely by profit, you know, to, to be a a motivated, transformative founder. And I think that's, uh, (laughs) I mean, even, even look at guys like Elon Musk, Right. Like obviously he's got all the money already, but I mean, right. There's no chance in any future near, near term future that the goal of reaching Mars is profitable, yeah. Yeah. right? That is a, that is a, a loss center without yeah. question. So, no,
1: and actually yeah. if you point to the example, there is now the, the, the new book about him with, uh, written by Isaacson, Isaacson. and yeah. Isaacson was on a lot of podcasts in the, the prior weeks. And I think one of the things he really mentioned was that he, uh, Isaacson, was also so surprised then when, when he saw Elon Musk that every time this kind of, this, in, this purpose of making us a, a species that can live on multiple planets uh, in a sustainable way, that that in the end seemed to still be his driver. Yeah. And, and again, that uh, also Isaacson's very open about it. That also triggers a lot of dark side issues with yeah. Elon Musk that that I don't know. I don't think we can formulate an excuse for that because he has an mm-hmm. overarching vision. I still think if you're an asshole, you're an asshole and should be acknowledged, <laughs> <laughs> but, yep. uh, but at least even this guy seems, seems to have a kind of greater purpose that really drives right. him to do this kind of exceptional things.
0: Right. Right. Let me give you and my Cheng's answer to this to this topic because, um, interestingly, I think um, her response is somewhere in between, or maybe it encompasses both of our Hmm. our uh, our answers in that it's both the funders and the founders that are to blame because her argument is it's the process that fails and the systems that guide that process. So her thesis is essentially, um, I'll tell you a little bit in her words, she said social change is far more complicated than building a new app. Mm. It requires more listening, more care, and more stakeholders. So the first part to think about there is if you are a solely profit-driven business, yes, you need to understand your your customers, but the metrics are very simple, Mm. right? It's revenue over cost. Right? It's PNL, P&L is a pretty simple metric to look at. When you're looking at impact, you, you start dealing with more subjective and uncertain measures. right? So what impact means to one community or one person in that community can vary because they have different needs, and we're talking about needs-based stakeholders. Um, she said to make a lasting difference Solutions must be embraced by beneficiaries, address root causes, and include an engine that can accelerate growth to reach the scale of the need. Social good projects, kind of like you know NGOs and development work, are slaves to the, the cycles, the funding cycles mm. in which they operate. Right? So this requires them to have to identify the outcomes of the project before the money comes in. Mm. So... If I'm a, if I'm a founder and I'm going to an investor, right, and I say, hey, I'm building this venture. I think this is going to be a, a billion dollar, billion euro opportunity. Like what I'm selling are pretty clear metrics, but they're mm-hmm. also pretty, you know, and they they're going to change. They're uncertain, but the measurement itself is very clear, right? It's it's profit and loss. Mm-hmm. Now, if I'm a social good founder. Or uh, leading a development project, and I'm going to financiers for this, like, I, can, I still have all of the uncertainty of what the outcomes will be, but the metrics might be wrong. right So that creates this huge layer of uncertainty. Mm. right So what am I measuring for? Mm. How do, am I defining success in a project? And if you look in the development world, like development models of you know, impact historically are really bad, right? What they're asking for is like how many people have been reached? Mm. How many people have been engaged? And you see these, and she talks about these examples in the book of like, you know, bad metrics versus good metrics. And she was talking about one startup that um, they invested in. And initially their kind of core metric was they wanted to educate a million farmers on um, sustainable agricultural practices. Mm. The problem with a metric like that is it's super hyper focused, right? There's only one thing that you can do is yeah. you can educate a million farmers. So what she did was she taught them to reevaluate and shift their metrics. So this, they got this company to change the focus. You know, they went through this practice of the six whys, essentially. of like, mm-hmm. why, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to do that? And they ended up reframing it to saying, we want to increase the daily income of all subsistence farmers by $1.50 a day, Hmm. right? So the outcome that they wanted to achieve was the same, but the framing of the, the objective was distinctly different, which enabled them the flexibility of finding different pathways there. And that's essentially the concept of lean impact, right? Is... Making ventures and projects open-ended and learning-based. Okay. So this allows for shifts and pivots within the the practice and the kind of ability to design outcomes through the the uh, implementation rather than than prior to it.
1: Because so you in- mentioned before, Garrett, you you have done your your own social venture in the past, and in the end, it was not a success. So by reading this book and reflecting back to your trajectory what what should you have done differently yeah
0: i mean the the short answer is there's probably nothing i could have done differently <laughs> because because the mindset of investors isn't necessarily like that okay right um for for a social venture like i was doing it was still you know it was still very much a for profit venture we mm-hmm. still had very very clear KPIs and, and metrics that we were trying to achieve from a, a financial perspective. Um, but I think that the challenge is here is that we have investors that are only looking at these very kind of rudimentary simple metrics. Mm. We have entrepreneurs that are trying to optimize for those specific metrics. So there's a very kind of linear path between, you know, profit-driven, profit profit metrics. But when you're dealing with a social impact venture, there's other metrics at play. You just don't know what they are yet. Mm. And if you think of the concept of, you know, customer discovery, customer development and, and lean startup, it's putting the customer in the, in the center of the journey, right? Yeah. So you're always touching that customer and, and learning. But the social model isn't very good at allowing for that. Mm. Right, So the idea is like, can we take a more lean approach where we're putting, it's not the customer necessarily in this situation, but it's the recipient, mm. the beneficiary of the impact and engaging them throughout so you can define what those, what those measures are. Now, as soon as you have to deal with private capital and things like that, it becomes inherently more complex. But to me, the interesting part of this was you know, here, like you said earlier, you're thinking the onus is on the entrepreneur. I'm thinking the onus is on the the financier. And I think what anne Mai Cheng is saying is it's actually both. Yeah, it's the right? interaction the, between
1: these two, not yeah.
0: It's the interaction and the the innovators aren't using the right model. They're using a historically kind of linear waterfall type approach. Mm. The financiers are wanting to have clearly defined outcomes before the iterative learning cycle takes place so inherently you have a clash of systems and and methods that are preventing you know the big outcomes from happening so i think the idea is like can we create can we create a more open-ended model here where it's like you know And you can think about it because a lot of investors talk about, hey, we don't invest in ideas, we invest in founders, Mm -hmm. right? And if you think of early stage funding, like pre-seed stage funding, it really, at least it should be in many cases, about investing in in the founders. If you took that kind of way of thinking into here and it's like, Hey, here's social innovators. We're going to invest in them and they're going to figure out by engaging the beneficiaries, what these outcomes might be. We're going to actually put the beneficiaries in the center of the process. So we should instinctively have better outcomes. Anyways, to make, to make a long story short, I started digging in a little bit more and what I've learned because it's been 13 years since I did like UN work, um, What I realized is UNDP has an accelerator. UNICEF has an accelerator, incubator, and venture fund. The World Food Program is launching all sorts of different apps and technologies and accelerating ventures. So we're starting to see these big development agencies and organizations saying, hey, let's enable innovation in the private sector. Mm -hmm. However, we're still dealing with these same systemic issues mm. where it seems to me on the outside looking in and just getting kind of uh, introduced to this topic that they're, they're still operating in that same kind of paternalistic, you know, old way, strategic, quote unquote, mindset, no. but without the adaptability and learning that uh, ventures need to reach success.
1: Yes, oh, very interesting. And I think the topic of social ventures is a very important one. And again, it's not something that we discussed that much, so it's very interesting. Well, I think it's, I, I would
0: be curious to see what our audience thinks, because at least at my time at VHU, I would say a lot of the younger generation, particularly, is, is more aware of this and more interested in it. You know, sure, there's there's climate, but um, which I think is is growing in its uh importance and visibility in the topic. But there's so many other social ventures that, mm. uh, you know, um, I think young people are are more passionate about this topic than, you know, 15 years ago when I was tackling it. And I'm seeing more ventures no. like this as a result.
1: No, and we, we really see that at way. I would, that there is also an increasing demand from the student population to focus on this kind of topics. And that's for instance, uh, I do the obligatory entrepreneurship course in the bachelor program where I have 300 students, and we divide them in groups. So we have 50 groups working on business models in that course. And from this year, I actually kind of forced them to think about what I broadly define as a sustainability driven startup. So they need to come up with a business model that at least in one way or another, addresses a topic that is sustainability driven, and again, broadly defined. So it can be climate can be inequality Mm -hmm. can be social issues. But that we at least kind of push them to think about that kind of issues instead of coming up with the next two-sided marketplace for a fitness studio you know (laughs) that kind of business models i no longer want to see in my courses because i think like there are more important problems to solve today than that kind of issue so let's at least try to push them to to think a bit in terms of sustainability
0: you know i think that's just we can maybe tie a bow on this with this last message because i think you brought up a really great point is i think we're we're in a in a time where competition is getting greater globalization means we're competing with people we'll never see mm. and and the really great startups are the ones that are solving the hardest problems mm. and i think the ones that are looking for the easiest path are going to be the ones with the greatest likelihood to fail the ones that solve big problems and can build big walled gardens around themselves are going to be I think have a greater probability of, of big success and, and big impact. And we need to get people thinking bigger about the problems they want to tackle. And I'm afraid, unfortunately, the onus of that goes on to people like you, Dries, and, (laughs) um, shout out to Max Eckel who might be listening as well, but it's guys like you that can really lay that foundation. And I just wanted to just a, a quick narrative. I was, uh, at the University of St. Gallen in 2014, doing some work with the startup at Haaske program, and almost 10 years ago, they had a an initiative called SSV for social and sustainable venturing, mm. and they were highlighting startups and trying to promote uh, student-led initiatives that were doing social venturing. You know, Veau has this tradition of like some really incredible. I mean, it's like Unicorn University. Right. But mm-hmm. um, again, it goes back to the topic of what are we measuring for? No. Right. Um, I think there's there's some really cool NGOs, Ames Foundation, things like that, that have come out of the same uh, same ecosystem. And maybe we need to start um, telling the story that can maybe fall on us a little bit, too, is telling the stories of uh, entrepreneurial and innovator success that aren't just measured by, you know.
1: No, and I think there are now very clear also at WIAU, I would say, we have the sensibility conference, so the students initiative mm-hmm. focused on sustainability that is getting increasingly popular every year. Now, actually, quite recently, so sustainability has become like a top priority for WAU, even in the kind of strategic documentation. So you see, I think, positive developments there, but it will also be about having the kind of success cases. Um, that we can also use to kind of show to our students uh, that it's possible to have a, su- a successful sustainability start? Because sometimes I think the discussion is also a bit okay. If we go, uh, like you were saying, it's about the startups solving the hardest problems. Does that also mean that it becomes much more deep tech related? And if it becomes deep tech related, what is uh, the position of VU as a business school where we are not really training engineers, but rather business students? What can be their role in in that kind of startups? And I'm not saying that they cannot have a role, but we really have to think about that. Like, okay, if we expect that the future will be sustainability-driven startups and that that almost by definition will be a bit more tech-focused than uh, e-commerce startups, what does that mean for our students and how can we prepare them to play a significant role in that kind of activities?
0: Yeah, uh, and I would just say, you know, it doesn't have to be deep tech. I remember meeting a, a startup about a decade ago called Mpesa, and they were one of these first companies that basically turned yeah. uh, in Africa turned phone minutes into yeah. transactional currency. That's not deep technology. No, that's that is just an, an innovative way to look at the the resources that we have. And the fact of the matter is, especially when you're dealing with uh, base of the pyramid, mm. uh, you know, type impact, you're you're not going to have the luxury of fast bandwidth and all the technology at your fingertips and and I think that could be very it's those types of ventures that I think are great for the Vehao ecosystem mm. right because you don't have to think about the the future of you know earth shattering new technologies that haven't reached market yet you can take the assets that are at your disposal and solve yeah. solve real world problems so good talk yeah all right Dries.
1: Yes, my something that made you think, yes, something that made me think and this goes to a topic that we have discussed before. But in my opinion, this topic has become a bit silent, but I think it's still a very important topic. And that's about hybrid working. So working from home has been a lot of discussion about that when Corona finished, but when people were coming back, and when we had the silent quitting movement, all these kind of things. But I think nowadays, it has become a bit silent, but it's actually that's that's sometimes a bit uh, the disadvantage of academic research today. We see the most interesting papers emerging because now Mm -hmm. we have started to collect the data. Um, and we have started doing fancy analysis to actually come to some conclusions about what is the effect of working from home on the workplace. And so I brought today a paper from Nicholas Bloom, uh, and with two colleagues, Han and Liang, um, Nicholas Bloom is, is a very famous economist in the U.S. Uh, does very interesting stuff, and so he wrote a paper about how hybrid working from home works out. And so he wants to kind of make the answer like, does it is it positive for companies or negative? Now, mm-hmm. if you want to study this topic in in an, uh, I would say in a reliable way, it's very challenging because you have a lot of issues, namely. Um, if you, I study this. If you go to a company and you say, "Look, I want to study the effect of working from home on the performance of your employees," you have quite some issues because it might, for instance, be that the people that choose to work from home are inherently different from the people that choose to not work from home. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So maybe the people that work from home, just as a kind of hypothesis, are less ambitious or have other priorities. And then they might underperform, not because they're working from home, but because they inherently have a different profile. And that's what we call in, in research a selection problem. So you, you might find a relationship, you might find a correlation, but the correlation actually just highlights a selection issue that you have different type of people and not a real causal effect. So then the question becomes, how can you avoid that? And the typical answer that you will get from academics is, oh, you have to organize a lottery. (laughs) So you have to organize a lottery and then uh, randomly people can work from home or uh, need to work uh, in the office, which of course is a bit challenging, but to some extent, these people have been able to do this. Namely, they work together with a company, a company that was, yeah, considering, uh, should we continue with working from home? Does it really help? And so they said, okay, let's do a research project. So in total, it was like 1,600 employees. And actually, they did quite an an interesting approach. Uh, So based on your birthday, you were allowed to do hybrid working or you needed to uh, work in the office full time. So the people that had an odd birthday day, so 9, 7, 15, Mm -hmm. they were allowed to work uh, hybridly. And people with an even birthday, so 6, 4, 22, whatever, they uh, needed to work in the office full time. And, of course, the great thing is this is kind of a random distribution approach. So in that way, uh, selection issues are avoided. Uh, and then, of course, they, they really monitor these employees intensively, uh, both with surveys, but also really measuring their kind more kind of Hardcore metrics, like how many people leave the company? uh, What is the line of code that I write for the engineers that were involved? Um, So in that way, they measured a lot of things to really come to a conclusion. Okay, does working from home makes people more productive? Yes or no? Hmm. Any intuition there? Do you want to make a guess?
0: Oh, I have so many about this, right? Because I looked at... You know, you, I, I think you know this already, but when I was doing my my PhD research um, on entrepreneurs peak performance, mm-hmm. they were in an accelerator program. Um, the data was being collected and then the first, the, the COVID lockdown. Yeah. happened. Yeah. So everyone went from being part of this accelerator to being home. I looked at their bio, biometric data, yes. their heart rates, their sleep, their they self-reported uh self-reported scales on performance and and well-being so i have my own insights on that but the first thing that comes to mind on this topic is this research is for me it feels flawed okay because (laughs) because it's looking at people that work full-time in the office and people that look hybrid Mm -hmm. but it's not looking at people that work full-time at home no and there is um neuroscience will tell you and psychology will tell you very clearly that change has a significant impact on performance, right? So the fact that some, if it's hybrid, that sometimes they have to work at home and sometimes they have to go into the office, that is not very good psychologically Mm -hmm. for the worker or for the, the employee because of, because of the the changing environment and the adapt the kind of readaptation that needs to to, to take place. Now, mm. what I can tell you from my experience and a lot of the the research I did and in, in my lit review on on this topic is that there's a huge benefit to working from home. Mm. Um because we get to create, create our environment. I'm in my home office right now, and I get to create the space that that works really well for me, you know, Mm. um, and, and I am largely distraction-free now, right now, I don't have babies at home. Um, certainly that, um, could, and I guess will change in the the near future, (laughs) um, which would certainly make it harder. So there's a lot of kind of, uh, variables that can be taken into account Uh in this situation. But, um, yeah, I, I find the, the question, limiting yeah. because hybrid versus yeah. um i i feel like it's, it's almost set up to to fail okay. in a sense right if you've got it if you have to jump back and forth and you know i i guess i've talked to a lot of people that are working in this kind of hybrid situation and um what i've been told by people that have been living it for quite a while kind of post-covid right now is it, it is enjoyable when they get to dictate what the hybrid means. Yeah. If, if they have to go into the office Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but Tuesday, Thursday, they get to stay at home, and that's what's mandated for them, um, it creates a rigidity and change that they're not, they are not really comfortable with. On the flip side, if they get to work at home and when they feel like going to the office and then working there because they want more social interaction or they need to engage with coworkers on a certain topic, it can be very fulfilling, empowering and, and productive.
1: Yeah. So let me then briefly explain because that's, I think it's a good point. So what happened here was you had oh, half of the, the people were allowed to do hybrid working. And what did that exactly mean? So they were allowed to work at home on Wednesdays and Fridays. Mm. And okay. so the other group, um, was not allowed to work at home. So that, that these are the two groups that they identified. And you already point out that that's restrictive and that's completely true, but at least you can kind of reliably compare these two groups. No? Mm-hmm. So you have the hybrid workers that can uh, work from home on Wednesday and Friday and the people that just have to work in the office. And so, and they did all the statistics that they need to do. And so what did they find? They find actually that um, working from home reduced at- attrition rates, and meaning people leaving mm-hmm. the company by 35%, yeah. Yeah, which is yep. quite significant. That's what I expect, yeah. Um, working from home reduced hours worked on home days, but increased it on other work days and the weekends. So mm-hmm. that's indicates is the people working from home do not necessarily work more hours, but they kind of change the structure of when they work. So on the days that they work from home, they might actually work a bit less, but then they compensate for that at other times, uh, which I found quite interesting.
0: So autonomy doesn't reduce their effort. It just shifts it to the times that make the most sense within their
1: schedules. So you see them adjusting. Then third, um, working from home employees increased individual messaging and group video call communication, even when in the office. So meaning they used much more digital tools, but not only Mm -hmm. when they were working at home, but even then also in the office, they used it more than people that were working full time in the office. And so it seems Mm -hmm. that you start to embrace certain tools and not only during your working from home time, but also at other points. And finally, their self-assessed productivity also slightly increased by 1.8%, which is not that much. So they actually came to the conclusion, and again, huh, given the limitations that you mm-hmm. actually highlighted, which I fully agree, so it's it's working from home, but still quite restrictive. You can only do it on mm-hmm. two days that you don't uh, use yourself. But what they were then able to establish is actually a causal effect on a job retention, job satisfaction. and To some extent productivity so Mm. even i would say in this kind of restrictive setting they were still able to find a positive effect and actually after the results were kind of produced this firm decided to give all their employees this opportunity to work from home for two days a week because Mm. at least it it tended to show that it really made a difference Mm. interesting interesting
0: yeah, I mean, it's not surprising, right? Like, I mean, stealing from Daniel Pink, right? What is the, what are the kind of three things that drive work satisfaction? Is autonomy, mastery, and purpose? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is autonomy baked in to a certain extent. I I find it interesting that they chose Wednesday and Friday <laughs> because Friday would inherently be a low productivity day.
1: Yeah,
0: and you know you're you're basically dangling a three day weekend in front of people. So you give them the opportunity to maybe work less on the Friday Mm. and then they make up for it on the weekend. Questionable Mm. if that's good or healthy or how that skews the, the outcomes or not. But, um, nevertheless, I think this is what much of the research that I have seen has, has exhibited Mm. is that, you know, satisfaction and, uh, in the end, kind of performance and productivity tends to benefit no. from enabling people to work outside of the office. And I mean, in the end, just the the just nature of distraction no. is huge. No. Right? I mean, simple things like feeding yourself or even going to a bathroom break, right, is is more effortful in those types of environments and thus take more time.
1: And it's nice that you point to the Friday, but because that's exactly also what I what made me think that they take the Friday. Because I, I like you said, Friday is not the most productive day in companies, but I think Fridays can be a very important day in terms of social bonding, because Mm -hmm. it's maybe a day where people get a bit more relaxed or where they even stop a bit earlier, but then they go for a drink together. And so, if you give people the opportunity to work from home, on a Friday, this kind of social bonding also disappears. And I think the long term implications of that might actually be something that we have not yet studied that much. So again, this study is also Mm -hmm. a study where you look at the short term implications in terms of how, like you said, giving people more autonomy and freedom and, and the results are not that surprising. But I still think we have not yet fully understood the long term implications, especially in terms of the, the social part of working from home. And especially if you do it on a Friday, I see a lot mm. of kind of important social bonding that might might be missed and, and what the long term implications can be for the culture of your company uh, might, might still be open. I'm not convinced that is
0: always a good thing. And I recently... The Friday bonding, expl- you mean? Just the social bonding at okay. work in general. Okay. Like I was recently exposed to this uh, this story of uh, of a company that was operating remotely, and they had a, a retreat where all of their employees kind of came together, and a lot of them met for the first time mm-hmm. after working remotely for a few years, and. They once they had the social interaction, went for drinks together, they were at a, at a resort retreat and um, it turned into a, there was a lot of visibility into the company's activities and actions that the that the employees started to learn from one another. Mm-hmm. Right. And it actually turned quite negative and turned into quite a uh, a, a bitch fest that led to a lot of attrition to <laughs> yeah. to that company. And I think the question begs, like, I mean, this is maybe a bigger philosophical question, but like, you know, do we really want our social interactions to be centered around work? And I think this is a little bit of a, maybe a a social norm Mm -hmm. that I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it's a little bit about a, a little bit of a control mechanism that exists is like, let's try to let's try to make the employees social lives part of their work as well. And that's going to drive more work and and greater productivity. While I think, you know, at least with a lot of kind of healthy people, they have social relationships outside of their work, and Mm -hmm. they would much rather spend Friday night with their family, or with their friends than with their their work colleagues. So um, yeah, I'm not sure how uh, efficacious that would be in the uh,
1: but i would like to make a big distinction between the dynamic that you described namely people working from home and then they mm-hmm. come together maybe three four times a year in this kind of very specific setting where you're almost kind of forced to socialize not then there is a lot of mm-hmm. pressure on talking with each other drinking with each other i for me that's very different from a setting where you're simply Regularly in the office together, and and where you where the the socializing is much less explicit and forced than in this kind of uh, resort settings, <laughs> where typically then also special events will be organized to force people to interact with each other. And I, so for me, these are two very different yeah. things. I also am very skeptical, and actually, I see quite of some startups also in the mm-hmm. ecosystem doing it, like we're all working away. And then sometimes we come together in a very high pressure social setting to then meet each other. And and at least I would think I would really hate that, you know, it's Mm -hmm. um, because then you feel so forced and and being a more introvert person, I would feel very uncomfortable with that. Whereas I like meeting my colleagues on a regular basis. So for me, yeah. I see there a big difference, but yeah, of course, that has been the discussion for a long time at companies like Google and Facebook that were kind of creating an an optimal social atmosphere, but with the underlying purpose, like then people just stay at work, even on a Saturday there, of course, we can ask ourselves a lot of ethical questions.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, give people autonomy, Hmm. you know, you want to retain people, give them autonomy. That's my, my big belief, but wow. Okay. We've been going for a while and we're, (laughs) we're. This is a good conversation today. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump on and uh, talk about something that made me think. And I, I think I've been taking a little bit from real-world experiences this week because I've just had some really interesting ones. But um, about a week and a half ago, um, I think, as you know, I'm a, a CEO coach for Alchemist Accelerator, which is a, a B2B enterprise deep tech accelerator in, in Silicon Valley. And I had a session with this incredible founder, um, in so many ways. I mean, one, she was an immigrant, female, quantum physicist with a 15-month-old baby and leading the mo- one of the most mind-blowing ventures that I've actually had a chance to really engage with. Mm-hmm. The startup's called Forecast. And they're out of Boston. And what they've done is they've married machine learning and quantum annealing <laughs> to optimize logistics. Okay. So... Quantum AI, to, to put it in the, in the simplest terms. Yeah. And, you know, I'm having this conversation and I'm just mind blown by what I'm, what I'm hearing. And, and frankly, I'm not so mind blown that, oh, okay, you know, machine learning and, and quantum, but how actually easy it is. I was like, isn't this expensive? She's like, we're using four different uh, quantum machines in the cloud uh, you know, in the end, it's not that much more expensive than AWS. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, holy crap, the future is here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What is happening, right? Um, so I immediately, like, you know, I think we've even talked on this podcast before about like, wait till quantum and AI marry. What's going to happen? So here it is, uh, you know, on my on my screen and conversation. So I wanted to do a a little bit of research or at least a little bit of reading to kind of understand. You know um, this strange but otherworldly marriage of uh, of AI and and quantum. So maybe I'll just start by kind of with with a quick explanation. I think most of the people understand that you know machine learning it's this subset of AI that kind of enables our computers to to learn from data and and improve performance over time. Quantum, maybe quantum computing might be a little bit uh, more obscure for people and just heard the buzzword term. But, you know, this is basically uh, a, a new computing technology based on principles of quantum mechanics to, mm. to process information. So, you know, in traditional computing, we process in bits, mm. right? These are one ones and zeros to represent data. Quantum computers uh, can basically... Uh, use something called they use something called qubits, mm. right? So it's uh, it's instead of just having ones and zeros, it can have combinations of the two. So yeah. it can have one zero zero one 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 zero zero. So essentially, these bits can you know operate exist in multiple states at the same time. Hence the the concept of of quantum. But what this does it allows for just much much more complex calculations and at unprecedented speeds. The crazy part is with each qubit added that's another exponential multiplier of yeah. processing power and, and speed. So, holy shit, that's some serious horsepower. And we have barely scratched the surface of this. Um, but we already have a, a bunch of startups that are writing code for, for this, type of, uh, this type of processing. By the way, you'd be interested to know that it's all in Python. Yeah. So I was surprised to, to hear that as well. Um, so what does this mean for the world, the marriage of the two? So first I can, I can tell you it was pretty, hopefully I'm not, um, sharing any, any trade secrets about this awesome company, but they just ran their first pilot and they ran it with four Walmarts and, uh, just four stores, uh, to optimize the last mile. And with, and with each of those four stores, just running this technology, they saved each store 20 K a month. Oh. The four stores, they saved 80K a month on last mile only. So Mm. imagine the optimization, 30 to 40% increase in efficiency just on last mile alone, just because they have the computing power to do it. That's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty damn awesome pilot project as well. Um, But let's scale this up a little bit and let's think about what this horsepower of these two things does. So I started reading some articles to see, and it actually turned out to be kind of frightening. You know, we've talked about AI eating the world. AI and and quantum together really does Mm. some crazy stuff. One, cryptography, as we know it, virtually obsolete. For example this will break the blockchain like one of our most transformative technologies that we have created to date that the whole world has been so excited about this immutable ledger arguably just be broken and quite, your, quite, your 16
1: quite. number passport is also <laughs>
0: nothing nothing Second, seconds yeah. right um this could make you know adversarial attacks literally indefensible Mm. if you apply it to kind of our machine learning algorithms like imagine the the problems we have with machine learning uh the biases how they could be exponentially reinforced um interestingly there's error rates and stuff that can be magnified in in huge ways as well we're just taking Crazy, you take that crazy horsepower, and any weakness you have in the system could be exacerbated to scales that we've never imagined. And I mean, mm-hmm. in the end, I think the biggest fear is that there's so many unintended consequences for this that we can't even predict because we do not have the capacity to understand the processing power that we've got. So, Dries, I think we've touched on a topic similar to this before, but this is a, a little bit different of an angle. I, I want to ask you, like, because you are um you're, I think, really doing some incredible work on this topic of of AI in general. But since we've done such a shitty job regulating and Mm. managing the implications of AI and creating this kind of open-ended world where we don't know what the fuck is going to happen next, have we learned anything from this experience so far that may help prepare us (laughs) to manage the future of quantum AI? Like, what can we take away from these past couple of years and apply to a, a context where the situation is exponentially more risky?
1: I think, but at least I am increasingly worried about also in, in the current environment is the kind of the concentration of it that we see actually that it's a very limited number of companies that are in charge of this uh, whole LLM development, and it's mainly the big tech companies that are making the difference. And of course, and it's a bit the same companies working on quantum. So for me, a fundamental question is becoming, how can we kind of fight this concentration? So how can we make sure that this kind of technologies are not at the helms of a very limited number of actors that can actually decide who gets the technology for what it's used and for what it's not used, and I think there I think regulation should focus on that's like and again it's it's almost like market competition, monopoly, legislation. What can we expect? if you see that last week Antropic uh got Amazon as their core kind of investors. And where you now clearly see how the ecosystems are starting competing. You have the OpenAI Microsoft ecosystem, you will have the Amazon Anthropic one, Google, Meta. I, I think that is very worrisome and I think it really limits the power of startups to contribute. I'm actually very skeptical about all these startups working on AI nowadays. I, I really struggle to see how they will be competitive with this kind of companies. And so the this, the evolution that you describe—it's just the next step, and it's kind of an exponential next step. Mm-hmm. And there is a serious risk that it will be again the same players that that lead. That so there is not a kind of healthy disruption of the ecosystem. No, it's a kind of reinforcement of the ecosystem that is already there. And I think that's something we should be very aware of. I would say.
0: I I think that's a a great point. Um, this article that I read, why quantum computing is even more dangerous than artificial intelligence. Mm. It it was published in foreign policy magazine. And, um, and what I found fascinating was here we are, we're looking at regulating companies, but I think this is a little bit of a, a, a slick juke move, right? Where, Hey, look left and you don't see what's happening on the right. And the argument in foreign policy circles. So interestingly, like the, the US, for example, last year moved their AI initiatives, like their AI research initiatives uh, from a policy perspective to directly reporting to the White House. Mm. So they've recognized the big issues here. Um, in China, like China did something amazing with quantum recently where they created a quantum communications network between mm. between satellites. And they were literally able to translate communications mm. uh, via via satellite infrastructure and so we're seeing and that was through a chinese university Mm. so it's still quite a a ways until commercialization but the argument of the the kind of foreign policy wonks is what you're seeing with uh with these companies commercializing ai is nothing compared to what's happening behind the scenes Mm. right like how much later does a commercializable product come to you know the world than the innovation that's happening behind the scenes interestingly most people believe that the world leaders in both AI and quantum, Chinese government. Mm. And the big fear, and you know, maybe China is kind of a little too big, but what happens when this horsepower gets in the hand of a despotic regime,
1: yeah.
0: right? I mean, if North Korea can have nuclear bombs, then how long is it going to be till they can have, you know, they can run quantum quantum attacks Mm. on machines. They're already, like, stealing crypto left and right and, you know, running, you know, big-time malware attacks all over the world. This gets in their hands. It could literally, you know, airplanes can fall out of the sky Mm. kind of story, right? This is where the the narrative gets...
1: Correctly. At the same time, I think this is also nothing new. I, I remember I re- I once wrote a book about DARPA. So the mm-hmm. the, but sure. the uh, U.S. Ministry of Defense created a special agency to kind of create the technologies mm-hmm. of the future. And if you looked at that book, you always saw that they kind of started experimenting with technologies 30 years before kind of they mm-hmm. entered the public life. Like they were in the Vietnam War. They were kind of experimenting with Highly sophisticated sensor technology. Then, in the Iraq, the first Iraq war in the beginning of the 90s, they were actually already using drones, which only came of kind of parents 20 years later. And yeah, so I'm. It's not that surprising to me that, that I would expect that military uh, departments, both in the US, but of course nowadays also in China, are now already really experimenting with quantum technology to see what what can we do with it. <laughs> Which is, of course, very scary because if you talk about your processing power, if you think just only about scenario planning in terms of wars that that can mean and how unpredictable wars can become because suddenly the scenarios will be completely different than the scenarios that we normally calculate that that triggers huge issues that, that are very concerning, of course. Indeed. All right enough doomsday yes. let's get to something that we made have something do, that made you laugh close.
0: sorry dude i guess that's me like i'm maybe a bit cynical about some of this shit but.
1: we always have an instance in our episodes that it really becomes this doomsday
0: point <laughs> i mean is that not a little bit inevitable though like um i think i've used this quote before that eo wilson quote about you know our our very simple uh simple minds and godlike technology yeah. i've got the exact quote right like right. i mean so much is happening so quickly and we are so late to the game we're because i think we're almost becoming slaves to the innovation gods a little bit because right. i mean to be fair and i'm certainly in the midst of this like we are changing the world in so many incredible ways mm. right what we've done what technology has done to poverty reduction is incredible. What it's doing to uh, human lifespan and human health and quality of life is freaking incredible. So of course we're super, super excited about it. But, um, I was, uh, I, I was watching this big think episode about alien life. Right. And it reminded me, I took a course in, in university called the search for extraterrestrial life. It was <laughs> legit. It was a legit physics astronomy course. Okay. Right. And there's this, yeah, I mean, there's uh there's this famous equation called the the Drake equation. It um, okay. was a great uh, astrophysicist that kind of came up with this concept. It's like, why haven't we seen extraterrestrial life? And you know, the, the the basic thesis of the question is that we don't believe civilizations will live long enough to to even reach the eukaryotic evolutionary state, much less become sophisticated in time travel and and travel across. Uh, Across galaxies and solar systems, and the, the there's two primary reasons behind that one is the stability of the planet and the star in which you know it it kind of serves its uh, its energy and resources. The others are the ability of these primitive minds to handle the technological evolution and that the technology goes faster than than the society to and as an as a result you have you know biological weapons nuclear weapons and they end up essentially destroying themselves so i think it is kind of embedded in it, at least the you know cynical society of the intelligentsia to say hey we're going to fuck everything up at some point so um unfortunately you get people like you and i in a room like there's probably going to be some like doomsday cynicism that <laughs> comes as a result of it
1: okay Let's have some fun. Make me (laughs) laugh, Dries, for fuck's sake. (laughs) Yeah, so the one that made me laugh this week was, um, and I'm sure you you heard about it, that uh, you had Lex Friedman, Uh quite a famous podcast host, and again... Variety of are you are you gonna
0: say with zuck in the metaverse yes <laughs> that, oh my god that yeah, was so
1: funny and so I, I i i think i saw it first on linkedin where they had this kind of movie where they saw that the two of them were in the metaverse and for me, these are two of the most robotic people that you can think about. So <laughs> I think it's not a coincidence that they picked uh, Lex Friedman and Zuckerberg himself to do this. Because, yeah, it, it almost literally looks like two robots talking to yeah. each other. Not because I think the metaverse, but because I think Lex, people are uh, robotic.
0: <laughs> I think Lex Friedman even said something. He's like, I think I need to really work on my emotional expression <laughs> outside of the metaverse as well. Because he was just like... So- I mean, incredibly realistic looking avatar, but he was, he's so serious. And yeah. so like, I mean, the guy's a, a a scientist and a mathematician and he, he's not very, and he always wears like black. I wasn't actually impressed. He wasn't in a black suit. So <laughs> I guess he was trying to, but yeah, sorry. Go ahead.
1: But so for me, it was almost like. I, I think I don't know if you know the series Silicon Valley that w- was a kind of a uh, versiflage <laughs> on the whole. Uh, so, and this this could have perfectly fitted in one of these episodes, I would say. Yeah, yeah. That you have the kind of uh, the guru of one company going into the metaverse with this podcast star, and then have this strange conversation that I think is quite far from what normal people would see as human interaction. (laughs) So it felt so detached from (laughs) normal reality that that you have to feel like, do these guys really know what normal life is about? (laughs) Or uh, is it so different? And I think the oh uh, second, but it was very close, was the, the CEO with uh, the interview at Code with uh, the CEO of Twitter, Yakarino. <laughs> that for me was even worse than a parody in a, in a Silicon Valley series. It was like, how is this possible? <laughs> what, is, what is happening here? I think this was the craziest CEO interview that I've ever seen, to be honest. it was. It, it, this didn't make any sense to me. It was crazy.
0: That's saying a lot because I'm pretty sure you've probably seen Elon Musk on Joe Rogan, which was one of the most unhinged yeah. ones I've ever seen. But Yeah, like, okay, but
1: there yeah. was substance involved and stuff like that. So then right. then it becomes a different story. But this was at Code, as a very serious conference where yeah. the biggest CEOs come and then this was kind of such a strange interview where she was behaving so extremely weird that you were think like my god because i think for a lot of people it was also the first time that they saw kind of the ceo of twitter and then or x nowadays um and then that she was behaving like that was completely weird
0: yeah i mean there is something i don't want to go doomsday again but there's <laughs> something a little bit frightening that you know the the people that really have st- Arguably, some of the greatest influence on society mm. and, and the way the world operates today live in such a crazy fucking bubble, yeah. right? Like they are living in an otherworldly place, and uh, and I don't mean Silicon Valley. I mean I think the the bubble of people they kind of uh, interact with. Like I was uh, I was talking with actually one of our former guests and good friend Oliver Ouse this weekend, mm. and. We were talking about we both used to love listening to the all-in podcast. Yeah. And neither one of us can stand it anymore. Mm. Because you have these, you know, four Silicon Valley tech bros that are no longer talking about interesting tech and they're talking about politics. Mm. And like, you know, I don't want to hear David Sachs's fucking opinion on Ukraine. He sounds like he's unhinged, he's a wing nut. Like, you know conspiracies, like maddening kind of perspectives. And you can just tell that there's like a complete disconnect with the world and with normal people in Mm. the world. And that is my big fear is that we are having such a kind of aggregation and centralization of wealth and capital and technology in this little bubble that lacks interaction with the rest of the world that we're getting these You know, business leaders just doing irrational things like like the Elon Musk quote yesterday. Mm -hmm. Right. Like what on earth makes these guys think that they are, you know, thought leaders and qualified experts on topics that they have zero interaction with other than what they're listening to on podcasts or reading in the news.
1: Mm -hmm. No, the all-in is a very interesting phenomenon. And to be honest, I still listen to it, not <laughs> because and, and I feel very sometimes very uncomfortable about what they're saying, but at least I think it's important that you hear how these people are thinking, how crazy it is, because they have an impact, you know, they have an influence. And to some extent, it also makes me better understand how the politics in the US is evolving nowadays. Because if even these people have this kind of thoughts and are so kind of influenced by particular opinions, then you can think yeah, about two kind of normal people think, you know, and, um, it's not, it doesn't make me optimistic, but at least it helps me to understand a bit more what is happening there. And if you look at uh, the Republican debates, if you look at it, without that kind of context, it, it, it's a shit show. But then if you listen to these guys at least you can understand what is happening there which doesn't make it better but yeah at least you understand a bit more i would say
0: yeah yeah i mean it's uh to me there it's there's this strange especially in the u.s it's like is the is the horse pulling the cart or is the cart pulling the horse Mm. right like are politics like um representing the people or are they you know framing The people's mindset, and I mean, it's just in a lot of ways, it's just as bad here in Europe, in at least in the EU in general. Like, what a shift we're kind of seeing right now, and it it does make you kind of ponder: like, is it these talking heads with these massive egos that are, because of our simplistic brains and media, are they the ones driving, you know, the individuals, the societal values, or the societal values informing what the the politicians say?
1: So,
0: no. All right, before we get to a, <laughs> get into another bad road, I'm going <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to I'm gonna switch gears, and I'm going to talk about AI again, but not artificial intelligence. artificial intimacy. Okay? How generative AI can now create your dream girlfriend. <laughs> so there is a growing trend. Of AI girlfriend technology, mm. um, one of the leaders in this space is uh, interestingly a, a Romanian-based startup called Dream GF. Um, there are many, many others, but they're one of note. Um, it allows users to design and then attempt to form relationships with girlfriends mm. that they create the images and images and personalities of through generative AI. So you can go to these sites. You can. Create your girlfriend, you can define her physical attributes, her hair length, ethnicity, age, and you also do breasts.
1: Or is it only girlfriends?
0: Interestingly, Romanian GF is coming up with a boyfriend version. Okay. Um, but it's not out yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um but even her breast size can be defined in this thing. They, you can even select like kind of really focused uh, personality attributes and fetish traits. Like I want her to be a nympho or a dominatrix mm. or dress as a nurse. Um, and once you've kind of manifested this this avatar in your digital universe, you can then chat with her, which includes sexting. Mm. So you can ask, her, you can ask your, um, your avatar to send you nudes. <laughs> so DreamGF actually uses its own LLM, since ChatGPT doesn't allow for adult content. Yeah. And then it uses stable diffusion yeah. to create images from the avatar. Um, and this, uh, this company charges anywhere between 10 and 100 euros a month. They recently eclipsed a hundred K a month in, in revenue. So uh, needless to say, people are starting to use it Mm. more and more. This to me is extremely interesting, but a little bit scary because of some of the more fundamental topics Mm. that we're dealing with. So, you know, this is intended to be funny, but I wanted to put <laughs> yeah, this in it. But I don't
1: in know. A a in a in an optimistic <laughs> mood. <here. laughs>
0: Probably not. Maybe that's <laughs> the theme of the day. Sorry, people. The <laughs> world is fucked. No matter how funny it is, we're fucked. Um, but but if you think about it, right? Like, there's some fascinating statistics out there about young men, hmm. um, and to an extent, young women too. But I think in this context, since we're talking about dream GF instead of dream BF. Um, You know, a a recent study in the U.S. said uh, over 30% of 18 to 24-year-old men have not had sex in the past year. Hmm. Uh, Another study was uh, the top 20% of men on Tinder get 80% of the swipes from women, right? I think many of us have heard of this incel concept, right, Hmm. of involuntary celibates. So... We're already having a problem with people having less sex, but there are global statistics of testosterone decline, which is quite incredible to, to think of. We're dealing with population decline in a lot of countries, this one included. And now we're able to manifest our own relationships with AI driven avatars that we can define our optimal partner, albeit not a human one. That is it's becoming increasingly realistic mm-hmm. and um now i don't know why people would want to do this um but it does make me wonder if the ai girlfriend is really f- the final nail in the mm-hmm. coffin for, for the future of, of humanity yeah. that we're just going to um yeah be sexting our sexting our llm rather than uh the real person we
1: met in this world. Yeah, but Meta is doing something very similar, no? They just introduced these chatbots where you can kind of talk with a celebrity. So, uh, you can now kind of have your personal conversation with Taylor Swift. And it's less uh, <laughs> it's less of a niche product like you would say, but I and you have to think about so you have a 15-year-old uh, sitting mm-hmm. in his or her room and he or she has the Uh, the choice between do I pick up the phone and do I speak with a real person or do I go into the meta chats and I can pretend that I'm chatting with uh, Taylor Swift what is the most interesting I fear it will be talking with Taylor Swift and and it will be so perfectly imitated that you really get the feeling that you're talking with her. And of course, you can think about how quickly with video and stuff like that, they will make it very realistic. And yeah, like you said, I think that if we can all create our own worlds where we can prefer with whom we talk and and never feel uncomfortable, I think it's a big issue in terms of Mm -hmm. how we will develop relationships.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting to hear the celebrity one, you know. And I mean, at least to a certain extent, that celebrity is capitalizing on their celebrity status. Nah. I read an article like a week ago, week or two ago, about uh some like school kid, high school kid or something, I forgot what country he was in, but he was in big trouble with the law because he basically took uh images of his girl classmates mm-hmm. and with AI created. Mm. you know sexually explicit images Mm. of these these girls Mm. um and the 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 fundamental legal question is is this actually like child pornography Mm. if it's if it's uh you know ai driven but if if you kind of think of it in this context where it gets scary is not i'm having a conversation with taylor swift but i'm having a a sexually explicit conversation with an avatar of someone that actually exists Mm. in this world that's not maybe a a celebrity where it's clearly a a fake or something like that so yeah let um, me give
1: me maybe one more example so my my mother became 70 some weeks ago and as a kind of birthday present i trained an llm to talk like my mother so we just kind of so from whatsapp actually we took sentences that she uses a lot and then you can train the llm and so we created uh, a, a kind of chat GPT like my mother. And so it worked <laughs> fantastically good. And so you can really kind of shape her character and sentences mm-hmm. that she used a lot. You can instruct it that it often use it. And so it, it really works and it, it feels like talking with your real mother. And so at her birthday, we introduced it and we had a lot of fun with it. But then you also start thinking, okay, now when my mother will die at a certain point, Let's hope it still takes quite some years, but she will die. Will I feel the inclination to open up this GPT that I created to continue talking with her if I need advice or if Mm -hmm. I want to talk with my mother and, and yeah, how should I feel about that, you know? Because mm. you're actually not talking with your mother, you're talking with a trained LLM based on texts from your mother, but how do we feel about that? And, and and would that help me in processing when my mother dies, or does it kind of postpone the processing? So, mm. Whoa, we're getting into some deep philosophical
0: shit. Are you talking with your mother or not is the big yeah, question, yeah, right? Yeah. Are, is the meat and bones actually your mother, or is mm. it the personality that is
1: mm, mm. so i think we are totally unprepared for all these questions that we raise now and they are out they're there now you know it's not this is not about what can happen in five years no it's happening now and we are totally unprepared to deal with all these kind of issues which i think yeah
0: oh dries in summary (laughs) we're fucked again are we (laughs) well folks (laughs) let this be a lesson to you (laughs)
1: oh man we should we should call our podcast now doomsday or something like that (laughs) jesus (laughs) all
0: right we're gonna challenge each other to our next inspiration (laughs) session to be like all rainbows and butterflies (laughs) because this is this is getting funny but um anyways as usual dries lovely conversation one of our longest yet so i hope hope people will still tune in so for those of you that have a really long commute i'm looking at you max eckel you might actually get through this one but um as usual drees always a, a pleasure thanks for bringing such insightful topics in, and uh, look forward to the next one
1: yes me too all
0: right folks that is it um as usual um please stay tuned for our next episode uh, and if you like the episode, don't forget to like, subscribe or leave your favorite comment or leave any comment, preferably a good one on your favorite podcast streaming service. This next nice to smile. Bye.